we have uh, both a psychiatrist and a dermatologist talking together about ethics. Nothing that we've ever done before. They're very well recommended, so we're very interested to hear what they have to say for us. Dr. Pouncey is a board-certified adult psychiatrist in private practice in Philadelphia, and her research interests include uh, psychi psychiatric um, nosology, the role and values in shaping medical knowledge, psychiatric ethics, the role of hospital ethic committees, and other teaching medical and psychiatric uh, ethics. Dr. Weissman is um, a adjunct clinical professor at Penn, a member of the Dermatology Clinical Effectiveness Research Network with a focused treatment of psoriasis. She's been a principal investigator in numerous phase two and three clinical trials, including biologics and new and emerging uh, psoriasis therapies. Please welcome Dr. Pouncey and Weissman. So I, Claire was approached first about doing this talk. I'm she Claire. Has, Hi. This is Claire, Dr. Pouncey. Dr. Pouncey and I have known each other a long time since we were college roommates. And she said, I know the ethics, but I don't know psoriasis. And I said, well, I know psoriasis, but I'm a little rusty on the ethics. And so we agreed to do this as a collaborative talk. She would learn a little bit about some of the issues specific to psoriasis which I think is a great fulcrum from which we can sort of diverge into other ethical issues that we face in this changing healthcare environment. They have to do with cost, they have to do with patient autonomy, uh, they have to do with who decides which treatments to use and when, and I think the physician assistant is sort of uniquely positioned between the patient and the doctor to have an interesting perspective on a lot of these issues. So what we'll do as we talk is we've got a sort of case study that we're gonna diverge from this case study originally developed from a patient of mine. Uh, there are some details about this patient that we added and embellished. We kind of had fun with it, changing the scenario so we could talk about different aspects of how we approach these issues ethically and as healthcare providers. Um, but the basic scenario is a real one. Dr. Pouncey is gonna help to define some of the ethical terms so we can sort of talk the talk. You know how we have macule, papule, patch, and plaque, when we could really say little bump, big bump? They have their words too, so she's <laughs> gonna help us understand those as well. So I have been studying medical ethics for years, and I'm associate fellow at the Center for Bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I do a fair amount of teaching and some writing, mostly reading and thinking on my own. And I have developed sort of a unique way of looking at ethics, which sometimes we treat as if it's adjunctive to the real work of our clinical practices. I think it's the other way around. I think that ethics itself is intrinsic to every kind of interaction we have in day-to-day -day life. So I would be in ethical violation of some probably not very offensive rule if I showed up 15 minutes late for this talk when you were expecting me to be here, or if I spoke in French or if I um, were dressed in my running shorts, um, because you are justified in having certain expectations of my behavior given the role that I'm in and given that we're in this situation together, partly professional and partly social, that we're colleagues interacting together and trying to think about questions that are of mutual interest to all of us. So when I think about medical ethics, I think of it as sort of the grounding on which any medical practice builds. And I say this because when we teach medical ethics, we often think of it as the session at the end of the long day, the thing that gets added onto the curriculum, the thing that gets 
added to licensure requirements along with risk management, although I've never been exactly certain what the relationship between not getting sued and practicing good ethical care is. And I want to just try to reorient that way of thinking for all of us in what we do. And this kind of conversation is what generated this mutual interest between me and Jamie, and it's a conversation that she and I have been having together for years. So just to orient you to my way of thinking about ethics generally, I make a distinction between moral problems, which are any kind of sources of conflict generally in our interpersonal lives, and moral dilemmas. We tend to talk about dilemmas as the big issues, the real problems that don't have any good solution, where no matter what you choose, it's going to be bad or wrong in some way. Those happen, and those are the ones that tend to get a lot of attention in the press, in the news, on CNN, um, in our coffee rooms, our break rooms. But moral problems can be mundane and equally troublesome. And we face those a lot more often than we face the really glossy moral issues. So I think of this as the kind of, the kind of discussion we could have with ourselves and with our colleagues about almost any kind of mundane interaction we have during the course of the day. And these can be things like related to the principles of medical ethics, which hopefully are familiar to everyone. They have been part of our medical vocabulary since the 70s. Um, things like autonomy or patient self-determination, where the patient doesn't just get handed down a diagnosis and a treatment plan, but participates in treatment decisions that will affect her or him. Um, the principle of beneficence, which is an active magnanimous, genuine caring on the part of the care provider, but not in a um, I'm holier than thou sort of way, but a general and genuine giving of self. The inverse of that, or the corollary of that, is non-maleficence, which is that old do no harm principle, that we are really supposed to be trying to do good and not do things that we know or have reason to suspect will be harmful to people we treat. And then the principle of justice is much vaguer, I think, and much broader. But it's important to recognize that we and the people we treat are part of a larger society in which different kinds of considerations can direct the kind of care we give and the kinds of treatment plans we develop. This is all going on, not in some separate room apart from the consultation room, but in our interactions. And at any time during any day, I could be tired, cranky, disinterested, self-interested in one way or another. When we think about self-interest, it's tempting to try to localize it to, I'm in it for the money, or I think I'm so great, I want to be so important. But there's so many ways that we can be self-interested that aren't necessarily evilly wrong, but are just part of the nature of our days. Some days we get more sleep than others. Some days our kids are getting on our nerves and calling us every 12 minutes. And we can't get anything done, and we just kind of want the day to come to an end. Those are real concerns and, and unavoidable in most days, in most cases. But they're part of what constitute the ethical fabric of medical life. And then together with all of this, we have sort of the calculations that we're always making when we try to come up with a diagnostic code or care plan where we're trying to minimize harm, maximize benefits, keep everybody happy, keep staff happy, keep ourselves happy, um, keep patients from suing us, keep their families from calling us 17 times in the next two hours. 
And we're always doing these different sorts of calculations that are partly for our sake, partly for our patient's sake, partly for our office's sake, and that's just the nature of the business. And that all feeds into what I think we should all call, but I definitely call medical ethics, which is a little bit atypical. It's not just principles. So in preparation for this, I have to admit, I, I was not already familiar with the Code of Ethics for Physician's Assistants, so I had to look it up. And this is just highlights that seemed particularly relevant to the case that Jamie and I are going to be discussing today. Um, you already know these principles of ethics that I mentioned. Um, as physician's assistants, you're required to uphold the tenets of patient autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence or malfeasance, and justice. You are to actively seek to expand your knowledge and skills, keeping abreast of advances in medicine. You are to work with other members of the healthcare team to provide compassionate and effective care of patients. And you are to respect the professional relationship with physicians. That's kind of a big one, I think. And I'll be interested to hear how you all think that feeds into the kinds of considerations that we're gonna be discussing. I don't feel qualified to talk about it, so I need to learn it from you. In dermatology, the code of ethics is derived from the basic American Medical Association principles of medical ethics, and it's tailored for dermatology. So part of the code reads that the American Academy of Dermatology's code of medical ethics is generally applicable to non-dermatologist physician members, you all, and nurses, as well as non-physician members, to the extent that they treat patients, engage in research, publish scholarly articles, or interact with other healthcare professionals, industry, the public, or the media. So not only are you beholden to your own code of ethics and your own expectations for yourselves, but apparently you are also beholden to our code of ethics. In a way, this makes perfect sense because we're really all working towards the same end in the care we provide and the nature of the practice that we share. On the other hand, I'm not sure if that's something you know or something that you would think would be reasonable. You have your own code of ethics. To what extent is it reasonable for physicians to expect you to also abide by their code of ethics, our code of ethics? The American Academy also states that dermatologists should provide only those services which are in the patient's best interest. Keywords, best interest. What does that mean? This is the kind of risk and benefit calculation that we're always doing all the time. We're supposed to know what the patient's best interests are that are medically necessary and or appropriate for the patient's condition. It's unethical to prescribe, provide, or seek compensation for unnecessary services, to withhold services that are medically necessary, or in the case of cosmetic or other discretionary procedures, to provide care not requested by the patient. So again, you know, you can sit there and you think, well, duh. Or you can think, what does that really mean? There's a whole lot of words in there, and it seems to appeal to some lofty aspiration about how we should be behaving in our professional world, but it doesn't really give a lot of content for what happens in the clinical room. And one thing that this seems to leave out is that there are, there are other players in this game. There are insurance companies, there are pharmaceutical companies, there's access to care, and so in an ideal world, I would love to give everyone everything that's medically necessary regardless of the cost, but in practice, that's very difficult to do. And it, you can't, unless you've been living in Timbuktu, be unaware of the constraints on medicine that is facing the United States and actually all of the developed world today. And so our code of medical ethics sometimes runs up smack into the limitations that, limitations that are hard and fast that are the finances of our country. 
So to complicate things a little bit further, <laughs> um, the New York State Society of PAs specifies that the PA should carry out the directives of the supervising physician, but if the PA questions these directives, he or she should communicate these concerns to the physician. Now, I don't think I'm the only physician who recognizes that sometimes we are not the easiest people to work with, and we don't always provide a climate in which you can very comfortably say, you know, I think you're really out of line here, and I really think you gotta watch yourself a little bit. It goes on to say that after discussion, this discussion that is oh so welcome, the PA should refuse to carry out directives which he or she considers to be unethical. And this is where that appropriate self-interestedness comes in. If you're working for a physician who is not particularly tolerant of dissent or any level of disagreement, you may be at risk of losing your position. It's not something we want to invite. We don't want to work in a conflict-ridden environment. We don't want to be thought of as the troublemaker or one who is holier than thou. And this sounds very good on paper, but it may not be very easy to live up to. The New York State Society also goes on to say that the PA should not voluntarily associate professionally with those who violate the principles of ethical medical practice. Well, if it's not your practice and you're working for a jerk and there aren't a whole lot of other games in town, this may be your option. So thank you, New York State Society, but if you're in New York, it might be easier than if you're in Montana. So here are some potential areas of conflict that so, we thought about. Talk about these? Sure. I sort of came up with these because I have physician assistants in my practice. I respect my PAs. I think they're very bright. Um, they generally have the best interests of the patients in mind. But you are working with two different people with two different perspectives. So you may find yourself working for a physician who's simply unqualified to write for a certain medication. <clears throat> for example, say you want to put a patient on methotrexate for psoriasis. If the physician, or cyclosporin, if the physician did not go to a program, or it has been years since that physician ever wrote for that medication, they may not know how to, which labs to order, how to appropriately monitor the patient, or what contraindications would be absolute to preventing that patient from going on that medication. If you, the PA, have more experience and you see a physician inappropriately using a medication, you are, according to this code of ethics, obligated to say something and intervene but that is a difficult situation in a situation where you have gone to school for shorter periods of time, have not done a residency, and may not feel that you have the MD after your name that qualifies you to object to what's going on. Even yeah. though you're morally obligated to do that. But you are, and according to your code of ethics, you're bound to do it. The other situation might be with a physician that the physician appears to favor a treatment course due to financial interests. Maybe the physician is enrolling for a clinical trial and they need to get these patients into the clinical trial by hook or by crook. So the next 10 patients that come on psoriasis are going in the clinical trial, whether or not they're candidates for something else. Or the physician has a financial uh, re relationship with a pharmaceutical company. And you can see this. They're always having lunch with this company. They speak for this company. And they're skewing towards prescribing this medication for this company without necessarily having the knowledge to know whether or not other medications are more appropriate. This is something you're going to see from the trenches. Whether or not you have the power to make the change is another issue. The other issue, and I've run into this, I've talked to other PAs that have had this, is that the physician expects the PA to prescribe or follow patients without giving the PA adequate training and or, and or supervising the PA adequately. In dermatology, for example, 
there are definitely practices where the PA see all the medical patients and the dermatologists shoot up the Botox. I think that's a little weird, but that's the way it is. And the PAs may feel like, wow, I, this is, you know, Stellara, Eustachinumab, a new drug on the market. I have never heard of interleukin-12. I mean, most of us, when we were, when you were in PA school or medical school, that was not, that was pie in the sky. So now here comes a new therapeutic that you may not feel that you have the knowledge to adequately prescribe or counsel patients on, but your doctor is saying, I'm really busy doing surgery. You see that psoriasis patient. That sounds like a good drug. Why don't you put them on it? So in case you didn't know, this is what we were leading up to. <laughs> the There's problem is that in real life, it's not always clear how to act in an ethical manner. And there are conflicting considerations, even if you're really trying to be the best person you absolutely can be all the time, at the end of the day, sometimes you're just tired. So here's our case. Okay, so this is a 27-year-old single woman with moderate scalp psoriasis. She tells you it's itchy, it's embarrassing, she's limited in the clothing she can wear. And on physical exam, she has scalp psoriasis. I'll tell you that this comes up for me all the time. I don't know if you've ever run into this issue, but if you give a patient a diagnosis of psoriasis, their insurability changes. Their insurance premiums will go up. So I will, ethically or unethically, until it's, until it's without a doubt scalp psoriasis, it's seborrhea. But if this patient has bad enough scalp psoriasis that I'm thinking, or that she is feeling that she needs something more aggressive, or I'm thinking she might be a candidate for something more aggressive, you're gonna have to call it plaque psoriasis. So her exam is consistent with psoriasis, not seborrhea. And she comes in and says, look, I saw an ad on TV and all these people were dancing around and running on the beach and they look so happy. That's the drug for me. There's so here's an example. This is not my actual patient, but I think you could plainly say that that is scalp psoriasis, that is plaque psoriasis, that is not seborrhea. And it's not so bad. And it's, it's, it's not, not to the, the nape, right? Yes. Okay. So if we're trying to apply moral principles and, and think through this in a moral way and not just take this patient's word for it that really whatever biologic is the right one for her because she happened to see it during days of our lives. You might think about it in terms of patient self-determination, you know, her ability to be directive in choosing her own treatment versus maybe a question of justice since biologics are expensive and contribute a lot to healthcare spending. Um, so you might be asking yourself, what's the clinician's role as gatekeeper here? Who's the arbiter of which patient should get which therapy? So if you go to your patient and say, well, that's nice, but you know that drug costs $15,000. Some people feel you have to earn this drug. So you need to fail, and um, physicians may feel it. Certainly insurance companies feel it. So they're going to say, you need to try topicals. You need to try UV light and or a traditional disease modification agent like methotrexate or cyclosporin. Obviously, when we go through the consents, those have known risks. The biologics are not risk-free either. So we need to talk to our patients, but the issue is that the biologic has one thing, regardless of risk, your perspective on risk in regards to biologics versus traditional therapies, there's one major difference, and that is the price tag. So are we telling our patient, eh, your psoriasis doesn't look that bad? You haven't really been willing to, you haven't tried anything else. We need to do one of these things first because we're not ready as gatekeepers, so to speak, to make that huge investment. And in some uh, clinical practices, in some insurance companies, they will capitate you. 
So you will, in effect, have 10 patients that you're going to be able to put on a biologic. And after that, there's no more money. So if you had that kind of position, you're the one making the decision. You have, you know, you, you, there is someone standing between this decision between you and the patient. So the insurance company can force you into a gatekeeper position even if you're not thinking about larger social questions. Right. Although the truth is, you know, I feel that we all have to think about the larger social question because it's looming. I mean, our cost of our health care is skyrocketing at a far higher rate than inflation. It's eating up more and more of our gross domestic product. There was a great article in the New Yorker a few years ago that said when you're spending a lot of money on health care, it means you're not spending a lot of money on other things. Education, the environment, innovation, science, you're not spending money on that if you're busy giving everyone with scalp psoriasis and expensive medication. But if you're forced into the role of gatekeeper, either on a microscopic or a macroscopic level, how do you take into consideration a patient's quality of life? The literature I've been reading in preparation for giving this talk suggests that when you actually do surveys and do quality of life measurements with people with any degree of psoriasis, their quality of life can be considerably diminished, even if they don't have that much extent of disease or it's not that severe. And what normally we would consider um, extensiveness of disease may not be proportionate to the amount of suffering that a person experiences. And if you think about the prevalence of, of psoriasis as two or three percent, and then you realize that 25% of people with psoriasis get depressed, get anxious, experience different kinds of functional impairments because of the psoriasis, or what seems to be because of the psoriasis, although our previous speaker did eloquently state that sometimes it's not causal, it's just an association. Um, how do you take that into account? How do you try to maximize the benefit to your patient while still keeping these other considerations in mind? So of course, in clinical trials, we have quality of life indices. And, but that, is not really a practical thing to do in your day-to-day -day clinic because it's very time-consuming and you don't necessarily have the statistical ability. You can extrapolate, extrapolate some of this data from the clinical trials, but we've got a slide. Is it the next slide? We have a slide saying that I'll patients, this is a very well-known study that was done by the National Psoriasis Foundation, who was taking all of you out to go have cocktails, um, that said that patients with psoriasis were in many cases more bothered by their disease than patients with heart failure, with diabetes, in some cases than cancer. They were more physically debilitated by their disease than, than cancer patients. And so this is a huge effect on the patient's quality of life. And when you're thinking about, look, we're dermatology, we're, we're working dermatology. Aside from cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and melanoma, there are very few diseases that we treat that are life-threatening. They are life-altering. But when my friends in other fields like to tease me about my field, I like to respond to them that the same is true for a lot of things that they do. Orthopedics, a knee replacement is for quality of life. You can scoot around in your wheelchair, but, and you won't die. But if you want to be able to get up and walk around and go to the mall, you need to be able to walk. So there, and psychiatry itself is a, a lot of these issues, you can be at home moping and depressed, a certain number of those patients may actually have a life-threatening depression that progresses to suicide, but a great deal of it is quality of life. Even my father, who's a cardiologist, yes, there's acute MIs, but there's also heart failure and these just simply decompensation of the heart that has more to do with quality of life. So a, a lot, a very small fraction of what we do in medicine is actually life and death. 
a lot of what we do is improving the lives of our patients. And so we like to measure that quality and try to assess where we're going to apportion our resources. There is a huge social burden of psoriasis. It is expensive to treat, and it is more expensive now because of the biologic agents. Um, some of these studies were done before the advent, and they have ranged in cost from $700 million to $3 billion. Interestingly, that $3 billion study was done when we used to hospitalize patients for psoriasis. Now you really can't put a patient in the hospital for psoriasis. But the 2002 study, which was the more recent study, was done really, 2002 is when I finished my residency, and that was when Ambrol came to the market. So the biologic expense has just skyrocketed since then, and we really don't have a good estimate since that's come out. So this is from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and also a study done by the Kaiser Health Foundation showing where our costs are in terms of our medical expenditures. And interestingly, 10% of our costs are due to devices and pharmaceuticals. But that portion of the pie is growing. And as I always like to tell the physician assistants and the physicians that I work with, it's a limited pie. So we need to be careful. I, 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 I had this guy in my office the other day, just tangentially, who's got some new form of triamcinolone that he says is creamier. And I looked at him and I said, look, don't bring me lunch and don't bring me samples because I can tell you I will never write for this medication. It will never happen. That is just plain silly. I don't know why you spend any money developing this medication. It's the triumphant I have is perfectly fine. And the truth of the matter is, if I choose to write for a $300 tube of triumphant when I could write for a $4 tube of triumphant that money is going to come out of somewhere. And chances are, it may and is very likely to come out of provider reimbursement. And not to say that we should limit our obligation to our patients in order to follow our bottom line, but understand that we all need to tighten our belts. That includes pharmaceutical companies, that includes providers, because the money is quite simply running out. Did we do this one? We did this one. Okay, thank you. And this is where we are. Okay. So in thinking about this young woman who comes to see my colleague here, um, we have to wonder, is it just the facts of the matter that determine treatment decision, or is there another way of thinking about how to think through what her treatment should be? Does it matter how severe her disease is? Um, the literature I was reading suggests that even mild disease can severely impair quality of life, but maybe it is the fact that we should think about how extensive the disease is and make decisions based on that. How does she experience her disease burden? Is that actually something we measure on quality of life scales? Are we asking the right questions? Or could it be that there's something else that she's experiencing that we can't possibly appreciate because we don't know to ask for it? Are there other treatment options like Jamie was mentioning? Should we start with topicals? Should we consider methotrexate? Should we consider phototherapy? And are there other medical considerations that come into play here? Do they have moral valence? And how do we think through these cost considerations, given that we're dealing with one person, one tiny slice of this pie? So I went and looked, just tweaked this patient a little bit. She's heavy, as most psoriasis patients are. She's a BMI of 31. She's got borderline hypertension. She has a family history of dyslipidemia, alcohol abuse, and depression. And with psoriasis patients, all of these comorbidities are higher than the general population. So she's 
her psoriasis, whether it's a chicken or an egg question, she's embarrassed, she doesn't want to go to the gym, she can't lose weight because she's not going to the gym, she's trying to date, and she feels embarrassed about her skin disease. So where are treatment options? We've got topicals, we've got phototherapy, we've got the old medications, methotrexate, cyclosporin, and biologics, and we could talk to our patient about any of these. So what's, what's she thinking about? Can I take this one or you yeah. want it? Okay. okay yeah. So what, so what she's, she's, think, she's coming in thinking, I have a great idea for what's going to help me with this. My primary care provider said it's definitely psoriasis. I was watching Days of Our Lives, and I know what the treatment is, and it's going to help me get my life on track. So I won't have the itching. I won't have the flaking. I won't have the social stigmatization. Um, it might help me with overall, overall health concerns, because I can start working out again. Um, it's going to help me miss fewer days at work because when my psoriasis is really bad and I've got chunks of dandruff on me, I don't go to work because I'm not showing up like that. And um, I won't have to be bothered with goo in my hair or time off from work going to phototherapy. And I won't have to take any of these other drugs that I read on the internet are really, really, really dangerous and can kill you. So just for curiosity, how many of you know how much the first how much the first six months of Embril or Tanercept treatment cost the patient? How much does it cost the patient? Nothing. <laughs> it costs the patients nothing, right? So, because they have a copay assistance. How, the first six months of Humira cost the patient $30. Methotrexate is more expensive to the patient. But it's a little bit of a shell game, right? Because someone's paying for it somewhere. But in terms of the patient's perspective, I want that one that's, that's free. I don't want to come in here and have to have labs drawn. And, you know, I mean, about the check say it's generic, so there's no, you know, free patient assistance program. For a patient who's uninsured in my office, they're more likely to get a biologic than methotrexate or cyclosporine because they may not be able to afford the monitoring that's necessary. You should do this one. Okay. So my interest is the provider. I want to give him something that works. I want him to be happy. I want to give him something safe. I don't want him to sue me, and I want him to be healthy. I want him to trust me. I want them to go and say, hey, Dr. Weissman's an awesome doctor. I don't have psoriasis anymore. And if she's referred to me from her primary care doctor, go back and say, that was the greatest thing. Look at me. I don't want a lot of paperwork, which, you know, <laughs> biologics can be a lot of paperwork. And I don't want to be sued. So what are your conflicts of interest? <laughs> well, we've talked, I think, a lot about the gatekeeper role and the role of society in general. Who's giving you the money? I once asked, you know, I mean, you know, the easy way to approach this would be to say to your patient, do you want to pay $15,000 a year for this embryo? I mean, is that really worth it to you? One of my patients asked, when are we going to have a cure for psoriasis? And I said, well, let me tell you something about the current state of politics here. The only people who want a cure for psoriasis are the National Psoriasis Foundation, the NIH, and the patients, and the doctors. There is no way a pharmaceutical company wants to develop a cure for psoriasis. And I work with pharmaceutical companies. I don't want to demonize them. I think they've made people's lives better with the biologics. They are revolutionizing treatment. But in the course of your life, with your psoriasis, you may well spend a million dollars treating your psoriasis. But if I said, I have a shot, and it can cure your psoriasis, it's a million dollars, you don't have that money, and your insurance company ain't going to pay it. So there is no financial interest to do that. 
What are my other interests? I want to keep the patient. I want my practice to grow and prosper. Maybe if I'm enrolling in a clinical trial, I'm thinking this is a good candidate for a clinical trial. And maybe a certain pharmaceutical company, you know, I maybe have a financial relationship with them. Since we're at Penn, we're kind of not allowed to have to do that. But other people, certainly, I have a colleague who makes $100,000 a year speaking for pharmaceutical companies. So those conflicts definitely exist. Okay, so going back to the quality of life considerations that the care provider may or may not know about, in a 2001 NPF survey, 79% of people said it severely affected their lives, that they did not live the lives they had before they developed the illness. 54% said that psoriasis caused depression or made them socially isolative or kept them from participating in the life events and relationships that they used to enjoy participating in. These numbers vary from study to study. Um, most of the numbers say it's about 25% of people with depression uh, people with psoriasis develop depression, but there's also social anxiety, um, there's stigmatization, there are um, factors that may not get a psychiatric diagnostic code because they don't quite fit the criteria for what we consider psychiatric illnesses, but they're the kinds of things that people would come to my practice for help with. How do they how do they live their life on these terms when their partner isn't physically intimate with them anymore or when their kids are afraid to bring their friends home from school because you have that icky stuff on your head and you're creepy and um, I'm not speaking about our case study in, in this particular illustration, but people are starting to look in, within behavioral health, they're starting to do studies on quality of life for people with different chronic problems, not always life-threatening problems, and, and patients are starting to be able to have a voice through these mechanisms for how really difficult it is to live with problems like this. Um, Jamie mentioned earlier that um, some quality of life studies have compared psoriasis to cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, angina is one, MI, and arthritis, and often um, psoriasis has more of an impact on quality of life. Someone with angina can carry around nitroglycerin and basically go about their daily activities, whereas someone with psoriasis might skip work or stop playing a sport or stop socializing because of social stigma or just self-consciousness, even if they're not actually being stigmatized by peers. Um, I think the point is, if you have diabetes, no one knows you have diabetes, unless you tell them. But if you have a skin disease, People wonder what's going on with you. And although Jamie talks about this as a, a what did you call it? It's not a mortal, it's a... It's not life-threatening, it's life-altering. Life-altering. Um, because of the prevalence of depression, thank you for that, because of the prevalence of depression among people with psoriasis and because there is um, comorbidity that may exist apart from, it may not be a, a sequential thing, people with depression tend to have psoriasis more whatever the inflammatory process is or autoimmune response, um, there tends to be more suicidal ideation. This is the kind of thing we don't know very often unless we ask. People don't show up in a dermatology practice saying, you know, I'm thinking about shooting myself. And we in psychiatry are trained to always ask about this, no matter how irrelevant it may be. So, you know, if hopefully most of the time, if we ask, we will learn whether this is a consideration. But if you don't know to ask, you may miss it. And there may be mortality 
associated with psoriasis that we aren't even aware of, we haven't started to study yet. And of course, relevant to our little case study here is that, the, that the, uh, a very large study done by a psychiatrist found that the depression was inversely related to your age. So younger people were more severely affected by the social anxiety, depression, and suicidality of psoriasis. And we've got a young patient here. So what happens when the patient's interests collide with yours? So I was in a meeting once, actually, and they said, they said something, someone said, this patient was non-compliant with her topical medications. And the guy sitting next to me said, everybody's non-compliant with their topical <laughs> medications. And there's actually a study, Dr. Chirizo's colleague, Dr. Feldman, did at Wake Forest, where unbeknownst to the patient, they were told to go home and apply this cream twice a day. And there was a little detector on the cap that told you how often they actually applied the cream. It's like flossing before you go to the dentist. So they were not, I mean, they were able to say, you know what, you were not actually applying this twice a day. When we do clinical trials, we actually will weigh the tubes when they come in and out. I just had this vision of my patients tonight before, like, doing that, <laughs> emptying their tube into the trash can. But patients may not comply. And with topical medications, it's probably, you know, they may not get better, but they may not. Some people feel that the tachyphylaxis associated with topical medications has more to do with non-compliance or non-adherence to the regimen than it does with the true building up of tolerance to the corticosteroid. But if, they, if you give them something like cyclosporin or methotrexate and they don't comply with laboratory modica modifications, with checking their blood pressure, with abstaining from alcohol, then you've got a potentially life-threatening complication for a life-altering disease. And I'm just gonna reiterate here that this is, in part, an ethical problem. This is a question about how we interact with each other, about what's the right thing to do, not just in a clinical sense, but in the sense of how do we make good happen in the world? How do we avoid making bad happen in the world? In those concrete terms, this has a moral component. And I like to say, when you leave here, you're absolutely gonna know the answer to all these questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's not actually going to happen, but, but at least we may give you a way of thinking about them. So um, forgive me if you know this already, but um, in psychiatry, transference and countertransference become a big topic of discussion um, throughout practice, but especially in training, where um, junior psychiatrists are taught to be aware of all the assumptions we make about our patients and be able to, or start to try to monitor ourselves to be aware of when we might be being judgmental or biased in some way that often we're not even aware we do. Transference is the patient doing this to us, subconsciously or consciously, having some response to the care provider based on some other experience. You remind me of my second cousin, who I hate, so I'm not going to do anything you want. Or you remind me of my second grade teacher, who was so sweet, so I'm going to do everything you ask of me. So sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Same thing happens for us all the time. And not just in the clinical venue, it happens every time we talk to each other. We're reacting to all these different things. So if I think someone's coming in and kind of being whiny and malingering and exaggerating her needs so she can get you know, whatever kind of, of extra special care she thinks she needs, I might get really resistant and withholding. And I have to be aware of that because I have to be able to at least evaluate for myself whether that's appropriate or not. Is it, 
is it appropriate to let those feelings guide treatment decisions, or is that something I'm gonna have to deal with on my own at the end of the day so I can still provide good care? Or if I think someone is just a lovely person and deserves all good things in this world, am I gonna provide advantages or treatment options that I might not if I think someone is gonna you know, resume their crack habit and threaten my kids on the way home from school? So a few more details, and this is definitely relevant to the issue of transference and countertransference. So we find out our patient is a party girl. She goes out three or four nights a week. She drinks at least four alcoholic drinks every time she goes out. And she says, I am not stopping drinking. I don't like the topical medications. My hair gets greasy. Sometimes I don't spend the night in my own house after I go out partying. So I can't even, I may not even have access to my medications. I'm not going to take cyclosporin. I read on the internet that one kills you. And I don't, I've been hung over so many times, I don't have any more days off from work, so I cannot get to your office for light therapy. I need that drug that I want that's in the magazine with the golfer or the movie star. So obviously we set this up so you'd kind of hate her. <laughs> that was the point. Yes. So here we are being She's obnoxious. Be <laughs> she also emptied your sample bag into her purse. <laughs> here, we, yeah, here we are asking ourselves appropriately, is biologic treatment the best way to go as a first line of treatment for this lovely young woman who I hate and it's time to go home and I really don't feel like listening to her spiel here. But here she is asking for a very expensive, or six months down the road, what will be a very expensive treatment. It's still gonna be expensive for her health well, insurance company. Yes, it will. So her premiums may go up. Um, so does she have a right? Does patient autonomy say she can come in and say, I name this as my treatment of choice and now you will provide it for me? Like, a dealer? Um, should she have to tolerate some inconvenience? Does she have to carry around her greasy tube of betamethasone and apply it at the end of her date? Or you know, should, should her shampoo concerns influence our treatment? Um, should she be expected to pay out of pocket if she's getting this extremely expensive treatment? Is this something she should be willing to contribute to on her own? Or, or should just she just expect society or her insurance drink. company to pick up the cost? <laughs> or just not drink. I mean, I use this term skin in the game. You know, what are you bringing in here? If, does your psoriasis bother you enough to not drink? I mean, does, or if it, maybe it's not bothering you that much. So then we got to wonder, we talked earlier about um, physician interests or care provider interests as maintaining good collegial relationships with our coworkers. What if, instead of this party girl who comes in saying, I was watching Days of Our Lives and now you must treat me with this, what if this is a patient of mine who I was seeing for psychotherapy for six months, um, she has a family history of major depressive disorder and some autoimmune problems, um, she's been severely depressed, she's developed a lot of social anxiety. I tried her on Paxil um, before I realized that Paxil can actually, that's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, antidepressant, um, and I inadvertently put her on this before I realized that Paxil or paroxetine can actually exacerbate psoriasis, and she hasn't really responded to any other antidepressant that I've tried. She's been participating in therapy. She's really trying to make a go of it. And I'm really thinking that if her psoriasis were adequately treated, her whole life would be different, that, that a dermatologist might be able to provide treatment that I cannot. 
Um, just in the interest of embellishing our story, I also present her to Jamie by saying she's had this very stressful job. She works 12-hour days with homeless children. After work and before she goes out to the bars, she volunteers at a children's hospice center, and those kids are always teasing her about her greasy hair and her chunky dandruff, and, <laughs> and it's really disturbing to her. So now, for drama's sake, she's more of a saint. Patients will fall somewhere in between, usually. So more game changers. We've got our third party stepping in. The insurance company says, you can't have the biologic. And by the way, I want to say, as a major treater of psoriasis, I don't necessarily think that the biologics are superior to traditional therapy. But in a patient with a history of alcohol use, I think we can all agree methotrexate's probably a poor choice. And a patient who may not be able to monitor, cyclosporin would be also a difficult medication to use. In any event, she's not even going to have access to a biologic therapy of any kind until she, and this is standard. You guys are familiar with this, right? You've, you have everyone seen these when they've tried to prescribe biologics? You've got to do the UV light. You've got to fail one of the traditional systemic agents. Sulfasalazine. I think that's a weird one. That's an easy one to write for because it's not absorbed from the GI tract. Um, so you know it won't work. Uh, she lives far from your office, so she can't really come for light therapy even if she had time off from work. And she's tried topical medications, they don't work. Maybe we've injected Kenalog, but we're stuck with recalcitrant scalp psoriasis. Add to that that as I'm presenting this patient, I'm letting Jamie know that she also has borderline hypertension. It runs in her family. She's got borderline secondary diabetes because of her body mass index. And it seems like she hasn't really been taking care of that because she might have some renal failure. Very early and inconsistent lab values, but she's kind of on that border. Um, her mother had similar findings at her age. Um, does that change your thoughts about treatment? So I use this example of the medical director of the insurance company being a urologist because that was a true story. And it, I said, how in the world can you evaluate skin disease? I can't evaluate transitional cell carcinoma of the urethra. Why, why are we having this conversation? But in any event, you try. I mean, you do your darndest for this patient. You write an appeal letter. You get on the phone with the medical director. The answer is no. She is bothered enough by her scalp psoriasis to agree to go on methotrexate, but because of the alcohol consumption, she will need a liver biopsy. So you send her for a liver biopsy, which has a mortality rate of 0.1%. Studies vary from 0.03 to 0.7, depending on the area that it's performed. But 0.01% in a young woman. It's one in a thousand. Did we do this? So you guys probably know the cost of biologics. Obviously, they're negotiated by various insurance companies, so they vary. But you're looking at about fifteen dollars to $30,000 a year. You don't have to come to the office as much. Um, monitoring maybe every three months, it's definitely less than required by, by cyclosporin or methotrexate and far less office visits than, a, than light therapy. Maybe there's less liability to us. There's not end organ damage in terms of the kidneys or the liver, so maybe we feel more comfortable with these medications. So what do we do now? She doesn't want a liver biopsy. You don't want her to have a liver biopsy one way or the other. We could put her in a clinical trial. We could try vouchers, as I said. She could get some of these medications, access to these medications for free for at least a few months. Um, you can you've tried the appeal. And then the other question came up, because I have to confess, please don't let us leave this room, that we are sometimes dishonest with insurance companies. We, I have a patient who's 
erythrodermic and he's got end-stage liver disease and Medicare will not pay for a home light unit, which is the only thing that gives him relief, unless he has psoriasis. So I'm like, fine, he has psoriasis. I so, don't apologize. I lie to insurance companies all the time, and I, I think that's the right thing to do. Um, so the question is, is it unethical to lie to an insurance company about the severity of the disease, about what the patient has tried? I am sure if you haven't done it yourself, you will not have to look too far to see someone who has prescribed methotrexate, had it not, had it flushed down the toilet, or my husband works in public health, please don't do that, just throw it away, but had it thrown away, because we don't want to take methotrexate when we drink our water, throw it away, come back, I've been on methotrexate for three months, I'm not any better, now I get the other medication that you want. I mean, this happens with Protopic and Eladil too. Okay, they tried the topical steroid, now give them the other medication, it may, I mean, I, hopefully we haven't reached the point where the insurance company is coming to your house and actually inspecting. So how honest, is that an unethical thing for us to do? It's an unethical thing for our patients to do. And how, how honest do our patients have to be with us? We can't make people do what we tell them. And everyone wants to please their care provider, right? Because we're magnanimous, magnanimously giving them this treatment that's going to make all their problems disappear, but they don't really want to do it, but they don't want us to know that they don't really want to do it because they want us to want to help them. So how do we have any way of assessing, apart from those uh, computerized screw caps on the topical tubes, how do we know who's doing what and how much faith we can have in them? It's supposed to be a mutual relationship, right? This is what ethics is about, is mutual relationships and reasonable expectations we can have of each other. And we don't always have an answer for that. How do, how do we know? And an interesting corollary to that is that you have a big effect on your patient psychologically. So when we do a clinical trial and we get quality of life questions from our patients, you cannot see the patient before they answer those questions because what they have discovered is their quality of life goes up as soon as you sashay in the door. Someone cares about me. Someone's asking about my disease. So I actually feel better already. Just That's the positive trend. Positive huh? transference. Yes, counter We love that part. <laughs> okay, so we have to decide something, right? Here are all the things going through Jamie's mind. I'm going to speak for you, okay? Sure. <laughs> Think of it like a cartoon bubble. So she's got these clinical concerns. She wants to respect the patient's needs and her purported quality of life and her ability to do what is expected of her and what. Jamie needs her to do in order to have confidence that she's providing safe and quality treatment. She wants to respect that if the patient says that not being able to go to the gym and having her hospice kids tease her is really interfering with her quality of life, we want to be able to trust that that's true. She wants to do good. She doesn't want to harm someone. She doesn't want to be deliberately withholding. Um, but at the same time, she's worried about distributive justice and in giving this young woman a biologic, what is that taking away from someone else? How does this balance out the, the many kinds of balances that she was talking about earlier between this patient and other patients in the practice, if we're talking about capitation, or this one person's particular illness versus maybe her diabetes, her hypertension, other medical needs that she has? How is it fair or not fair to her work colleagues who have to take up the slack for her if she's at light therapy? And how does it fit into the bigger pie of healthcare expenditures in the country generally? 
and you can think of anything else. We'll want to hear it from you. So, next patient. There's your 15 minutes. <laughs> New person coming in. <laughs> so, we're on to the next patient. If it's a psoriasis, so my feeling, and I can tell you what happened with this patient, and that is that she did ultimately end up on a biologic. She did not have a liver biopsy. And everyone is influenced by what's happened to them personally. So when I was an intern, we had a patient, a young woman life flighted in from a small community hospital where they lacerated her hepatic artery and she died on the table. And I just wasn't comfortable forcing her to have a liver biopsy. So she did, in fact, after all of this, end up on a biologic. I have other patients. I have an interesting patient. I have a patient. He has 80% body surface area psoriasis. When you walk in the room, you cringe. But he just wants a pound jar of triamcinolone. And although there has been a lot of interest in whether psoriasis is a systemic disease, I don't think we can say at this point that that is a hard and well-established fact. And what we certainly can't say is that treating psoriasis lowers those comorbid risks, particularly in regards to cardiovascular disease. So that's fine. But interestingly, talking to this patient the other day, he said, well, my son has psoriasis. And when he, if he gets bad, he's eight years old, if he gets bad, when he's a teenager, I want you to put him on something really strong. Because I almost committed suicide when I was a teenager, when I had psoriasis. Now I'm married, my wife doesn't care, got a job, I've moved on, it doesn't bother me as much, and of course this correlates with our past statistics, but he has a different feeling about his child. So you are in this situation as a provider where you're treating each individual patient one at a time, and I always say to my patients, there's two things here. There's what I see. Oh my God, you have horrible psoriasis. Let's take out a big gun. There's what you feel. Doesn't bother me. Oh, you have a little scalp psoriasis here. Let me inject some steroids. Maybe it'll work. It's not so bad. There's what you feel. I had a girl in my office, a little 17-year-old, who I, you know, I mean, if I was to quantify her scalp psoriasis, she probably had a palsy 75. She had a 75% improvement. And I said, okay, we got to cut back. She's using Clobex. We're going to have suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary axis. And her mom says, you know, when we cut back, you know, we cut back and this is what happened. It was all gone. And now she's really unhappy. What can we do? So we have to weigh, weigh those things. This is that person who's at the most vulnerable period of time. What do I do at this point? I don't want to keep suppressing the hypothalamic pituitary axis. You have to have a long and honest conversation with your patients. But at this point, we're all working within the parameters of the rules that we have in regards to insurance companies, in regards to our patients, in regards to our liability. And we're doing the best we can with these ethical conundrums. So unfortunately, we're not going to be able to tell you, like, the answer is A and the answer to this one is B. And these are hard and fast rules the way we could when we, you take your boards and you know that the most common you know, end organ damage of cyclosporin is kidney disease. There's no right and wrong answer here. But I think if you can mull these things over in your head, be aware of your position in this maze, you're going to have an easier time, at least, coming to the right ethical conclusion. And then you have to have a throwdown with the dermatologist you work for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And hopefully your dermatologist is open to those issues as well. Any questions or comments? All right. We answered everything.
Didn't see that coming. Are we confused, everyone? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.